Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Georgia and I'm with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University. I'm joined today by Giselle Donnelly from the American Enterprise Institute and Dalbur Rohach, also with AI. I'm afraid my dog is going to bark in a second. Here we go. <laughs> um, give me a second. <laughs> oh God. It's probably the postman again. All right, I think um, I think I'm good now. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that have emerged along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and by why those matter to the United States. Um, today, we have again and against all odds, and we're thrilled to have him with us, um, Fred Kagan, to give us an overview um, of the situation on the ground. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fred, over to you. Um, you're now uh, more than a regular here. And uh, can you give us an overview of what is happening, um, what is happening right now on the ground? Sure. Um, well, it's, it's good to be back with you all. And thank, thanks for having me and for continuing to be focused on this issue, which is important because one of the most important things that's happening, I think, is that people are starting to lose focus uh, on Ukraine. God. <laughs> and that's and that's un, and that's unfortunate. Um, I hope Ukraine won't become the dog that isn't barking. Um, uh, but it's unfortunate because it this this really is uh, a pivotal moment. The good thing is that the U.S. has uh, now you know contributed to a huge aid package uh, at a critical time. So that's uh, that's very positive and very important. And it is relevant to the question that you asked. Um, because Ukraine is in the midst of a counteroffensive that is um, has cleared a significant portion of the area around Kharkiv city. Uh, the Ukrainians appear to be trying to drive uh, toward uh, the Russian uh, border um, to the north, largely, I think, to drive the Russians fully out of artillery range of the city. Um, but they're also trying to drive northeast, I think, to try to cut the uh, one of the Russian G-locks uh, that runs from Belgorod through uh, Vovchansk to uh, Izum. Uh, that counteroffensive is going well. The Russians, it, it's it's not following quite the same pattern as what we had seen uh, with the Ukrainian counteroffensives around Kiev and Sumy, where uh, the Ukrainians launched a big successful counteroffensive and the Russians just bailed. Uh, the Russians are fighting uh, in Kharkiv uh, Oblast, and uh, we can talk about why that might be um, and why that might be different if you want. Uh, elsewhere, the main, you know, decisive operations in principle for the Russians are still the attempt to create a cauldron from Izum to Donetsk City, um, which is just not going to happen. And the Russians continue to bang their heads against Ukrainian defenders around Izum, uh, and they're just they're just not making very much progress there. They're also banging their heads against defenders around Donetsk City, making very very limited progress uh, there. It's remarkable, actually, in that uh, in the it, the Russians have had a very hard time fighting through the original defensive positions that had been in place since before the invasion along Donbass. Uh, and they're just finding that very hard going, but they keep trying. 
So the only Russian offensive operations that are really making any kind of progress at all are those that, in our judgment, are setting up for the Battle of Syrodonetsk, um, which I think is what the Russians have largely constrained their objectives to at this point. I think the Russians are really focused on a, a relatively shallow encirclement of the cities of Donetsk and, the, and Lysychansk. Um, and they're trying to do that from the north and the south. Um, and they are making uh, some progress. But my judgment currently is that the Battle of Severodonetsk will be the last major offensive ro- Russian operation of this phase of the war. And then um, the question will be the how far and how fast the Ukrainians can get into a counteroffensive uh, to uh, break any encirclement of Severodonetsk and the Sachansk if the Russians can encircle them and then to push the Russians back and, and how that's going to go. Otherwise, the rest of the story is about various Russian efforts to establish occupation administrations, especially in the south. And then, of course, the, the story of the final surrender of Mariupol and now the question of the fate of the uh, Ukrainian defenders who uh, surrendered there. So that's, um, that's largely the situation. Fred, I wonder if we could sort of go in reverse order from our normal sequence um, and talk a bit um, about not only the occupied territories, but the citizens of Ukraine that have been deported to Russia, especially the children involved. What do we know about that? And uh, more importantly, is there anything we can do about it? Well, I think the answer to the second question is unfortunately straightforwardly no. I don't. I don't see what we can do about the fact that the Russians are illegally deporting um, innocent civilians uh, from a conquered zone. And um, I'm not an international law- lawyer, so I, I don't. I don't know what all statutes that uh, violates. But the Russians certainly have no legal right that I'm aware of to pick random Ukrainian citizens and, and just deport them to various locations in Russia. But they're, they are doing that. Um, and I don't, and I would hear various anecdotal reports of what sometimes happens to those people and, and so on. Um, but it's, it's hard to tell. I think one of the reasons why it's hard to tell what's going on is because there seems to be confusion. There seems to be tension between the Russians and their occupation authorities and proxies and there seems to be confusion in the minds of almost everybody on the ground on the Russian and proxy side about what exactly they're supposed to be doing. So on the one hand, we keep getting these backing and forth things about we're going to have a referendum. We're not going to have a referendum. We're going to annex. We're not going to annex. It's going to belong to this. It's going to belong to that. And the, the noise to signal ratio there is very, very high. And it, and it, it suggests... I think on the one hand, I think it it reflects the fact that the Russians have not been able to create a security environment in uh, Kherson, uh, occupied Zaporizhia, um, and uh, and Mariupol that um, is necessary actually to do the kind of sort of political grandstanding that they want to do. But I think, and there is a Ukrainian partisan movement that is that is active, that is making that hard. And then there's just a huge amount of local resistance. Um, so the Russians keep wanting to do referenda and the Ukrainians just keep push, putting their ears back and refusing to, to play. But beyond that, we've started to see reporting that the there are arguments between the collaborators 
in these areas and the Russians and arguments between the proxies and within the proxy movement about exactly how this is supposed to go, which I think probably reflects in part the fact that they think they're at the stage where the spoils need to be divided. And so they, they're having the predictable arguments about how to divide the spoils. Do we have any sense at all about how confident the uh, collaborationists, just to use the easy term, are that their current um, upper hand is likely to last? Um, or or you know, there's... there's yeah. different kinds of spoils to divide you know there's refrigerators to take home uh all the way up to uh you know patronage to no they're out. I, no i think they're playing for bigger for the for the bigger stakes now i think they're okay. assuming that they're gonna the russians are going to continue to keep control of this stuff i don't i'm not really seeing anything that tells me that people are oriented on on what can they load onto trucks and take home at that level. I mean, we had pl- we've had plenty of that activity yeah. going on, but uh, the collaborationists that we're looking at don't seem to be playing that game. They seem to be, you know, preparing for a long-term Russian control and occupation. And look, I mean, I think unless you're a complete imbecile and which um, I don't think these guys are you have to know that if you stand yourself up as a collaborationist, whatever's happening in the world you are not going to end up living in a free Ukraine if the Ukrainians liberate that territory. So you're, you're there and now, so you fight for the spoils. So I was hoping um, whether you could tell us a little bit more about um, the situation in, at, at Azovstal in, in, in Mariupol, because there've been somewhat confusing reports that we've been hearing. So a few days ago, there was the news of the surrender supposedly with International Red Cross UN guarantees of some kind of prison exchange. We also heard that that these troops were then taken, abducted abducted to Russia, put in pre-trial detention. This morning on NPR, I heard about 1,000 Ukrainian soldiers being evacuated from Azovstal, which struck me as extremely confusing. First of all, it's a huge number, and, and I'm not quite sure what evacuated means in this context. So if, 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 if you have any insights into what's actually happening to those troops and how many there still are and what the prospects are going forward, that would be really helpful. Look, it's still, it's still murky. It's still a little murky to us anyway, um, or to me. Um, and, and, you know, can't, I haven't had a chance to go through all today's collect. So I'm current as of about 1800 yesterday. Um, but it seems pretty clear that there was some surrender agreement, uh, between the Russians and the Ukrainian defenders that the Ukrainian general staff authorized the defenders to make or that they made with the Russians. Um, that agreement does not appear to have included uh, any prisoner exchange agreement, which the Ukrainian general staff, at least as, to, as of yesterday, was saying that they were going to try to negotiate separately. Um, so it, it nevertheless, it was presented in a way that suggested that there was some conditionality to the surrender so that it wasn't just an unconditional surrender and that the that those who uh, surrendered would be evacuated from the facility and treated. Um, what's interesting or one of the things that we're finding interesting is the way that the Russian information space 
and social media space and political space has reacted to this, which has been anger, a lot of anger, a lot of condemnation of the Russians for negotiating with these guys at all. A lot of complaints about um, even contemplating exchanging them for prisoners, uh, members of the Duma proposing legislation that would that would ban that demands that these guys be tried as Nazis and um, or just murdered and various other things. I mean, there's a lot of vituperation in the Russian information space um, about this and a lot of anger, which is interesting. And the ISW team's assessment is that the Russians have worked so hard to build up Mariupol and the capture of it as a triumphant you know, defeat over the, the air quotes Nazism that they, you know, regard as being epitomized by the Azov regiment, that the notion that they would do anything other than just kill all of these guys uh, seems to be very anathema uh, to a lot of, you know, strongly pro-Russian Russians um, on the Russian side. You know, whenever I see members of the Communist Party in the Duma proposing legislation that seems out there, it, you know, I it makes me wonder the degree to which they're being goosed into doing that by Putin and his cronies. Um, I think the Russians very much don't want to have to give these guys up. Um, but I don't know what they said to the Ukrainians. Um, so it's a very complicated situation. We have the reports that not everybody left. We have the reports that some commanders have stayed as of yesterday, the Russians were still bombing the facility, which suggests that they thought that some people were there. There's a whole other conversation that we can have about the announcement, uh, Dennis Pushilin's announcement that they were going to turn it into a fairground, um, which I think is a conversation worth having, actually. But in terms of what's going on with these guys, look, I mean, I am also a little bit surprised at the number, although the number includes um, a lot of wounded. And we've, you know, we've known that there were a lot of wounded there in terrible conditions. Um, I think it's, I mean, who knows the, the Russians should be interested in getting back their POWs, but that doesn't mean that they're going to feel like they want to do these trades. And some of these guys, they probably will hang on to, I can absolutely see some commanders of the units. there deciding that they'd rather go down fighting, um, than deal with what's likely going to face them. And the Russians seem content to keep bombing the place, you know, rather than actually going and try to clear it out, which I can kind of sympathize with considering what that plant looks like. I can sympathize with it considering you've decided to do something evil and illegal and all like, <laughs> you know, within that framework. Your empathy is amazing. It's, it's bounded. It's bounded. <laughs> it's very bounded empathy. But yeah. Um, I, I want to ask you a twofold question looking at... Um, something that you just touched upon a bit earlier that let's call it grand theft, um, theft at large scale. We've seen over the last few days, so that's the first part we've seen over the last few days reports um, of massive attempts to steal grain and um, as well plants in Mariupol 
um, under Russian tutelage to steal or to export industry um, bits and pieces, whatever they can put their uh, get their hands on, given how destroyed it is. And then I think today we've seen kind of connecting this eastern and southern part. We've seen Zelensky saying that the Donbass is destroyed, so suggesting there isn't actually much to steal. So. Um, maybe you can you can go a little bit into that in terms of your assessment of what they're trying to do and how much they can put their hands on and how that balances in the whole context of the in, this is the segue to the second part um, in the context of the food crisis. We had the Economist, I think, this week announcing food catastrophe on on the front page. Um, and we've seen now increasing calls in a small group among U.S. lawmakers from the B British Minister um, of um, Foreign Affairs from the U.N., um, I think, over the last few hours of thinking about solutions to uh, de-blocking off the Black Sea, um, creating what I'm guessing would look like corridors um, but I'm guessing that would take military enforcement. Um, so can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, I'll start with the last one. Um, yeah, unless, you know, unless the Russians actually decide that they, um, you know, want to want to rejoin the portion of humanity that has humanity um, and allow the grain to flow, it would require a military operation. This is why um, the stuff that's going on around Snake Island is significant. Uh, the Russians are trying to reinforce their position on Snake Island. This is this is the island where they, at the beginning of the war, we had the famous Ukrainian uh, response to the demand to surrender, which does beat nuts in my in my view as responses to surrender demands. Um, and the Russians are trying to reinforce Snake Island because Snake Island is really important if you're going to do this. Uh, I mean, the discussions had been that we were going to try to run some kind of humanitarian route along the Black Sea coast, along the Romanian coast, and Snake Island is right there. So if, if nothing else, you you know, we would have to neutralize the Russian positions on Snake Island, which the Ukrainians are working on, but I, I'm sure that they would need help with that. But look, beyond that, I mean, given what given the Black Sea fleet and what the Russians have uh, and the missile complex and various other things, if the Russians are determined to prevent people from getting in there, then someone would have to be prepared to do a reasonably significant military operation against Russia, uh, against Crimea anyway, um, and the Black Sea fleet potentially to secure humanitarian convoy going through there. Uh, the Turks would have to sign up to that because it would mean reinforcing in the Black Sea with uh, warships uh, to conduct military operations. Um, Turks not given me any more of a warm and fuzzy than they usually do with their response to the applications of Finland and Sweden to join NATO. So I'm not sure that I'm confident that they would support uh, that kind of activity, although you never know. Uh, might be a matter of finding Erdogan's price for this one. Um, but I, I think it would require the West deciding that it was prepared to get into a shooting match with the Russians. Um that's it's straightforward. Putin's making out the choice. So, um, I, I I don't know how to how to handicap whether we'll suddenly you know finally decide that we are willing to do that or not. Um, but I don't think there's anything short of that that's likely to, to have a significant effect. In terms of the Russian and what Zelensky said in the Russian theft, yes, I mean you know 
theft on a massive scale is is the Russian trade. Uh, as they seized areas in 2014 and 2015, they were very prompt to strip them um, and pull the pull the stuff back. Um, it sort of amuses me. This is actually a, a, a Soviet core competency that I wrote an article about. It was the first article I ever got published. Um, <laughs> it's very in, uh, Stalinist, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it yeah because but I mean it wasn't bad when this when and when I was in the period I was writing about it was the evacuation of Soviet industry in 1941 and 1942. Um, but they, they, they actually developed, you know, an amazing doctrine for stripping down industry, you know, build, uh, factories really fast and moving them to the Urals and stuff. So I think they, I don't know if they retained that playbook, but they, they would, they'd love to do that. But the problem is, look, I mean, they really have applied the Tacitian, uh, phrase here. I mean, they're, they're, they are making a desert and then they will call it peace. And the, the tactics that they have shifted to uh, to try to accommodate the uh, cowardice and incompetence of their soldiers have been very much of a French methodical battle style uh, activity where you, you bomb the bejesus out of an area. And then, you know, when you think there's nobody alive, you, you move into it. If anybody shoots back, then you bomb the bejesus out of it some more. Okay, that's, that leaves nothing but rubble. And that's what they've created. Um, and even Pushilin, I think, said that 60% of the built dwellings in Mariupol were not, not only uninhabitable, but not couldn't be reconstructed, couldn't be re- repaired. Um, so they've obliterated Mariupol. They've obliterated Azovstal. Um, and they're, they've obliterated much of Sieverodonetsk. Um, so, I mean, they're destroying the, the prizes that, in principle, they should have wanted to take. So I don't know what there will be left to steal. I mean, I remember in 2007 in, in Ramadi watching Iraqis, you know, pulling rebar out of, you know, concrete, concrete so that they yeah. could rebuild. Um, I, I don't think that's what Putin was going for, but I think that might be where they're at. Hoping um, that we could also consider the sort of re- re- reciprocal scenario to the one outlined by, by Yulia, in which Ukraine and the West sort of reestablishes order in the Black Sea, namely a situation in which uh, Russians continue to hold on to this idea of a land bridge to Odessa and, and Transnistria and attempt something, amphibious landing, whatever it might be. Uh, it looks, in the light of what you described, uh earlier it looks like this might be out of out of russia's reach right now but but is is there a possibility that this might still be attempted as a sort of hail mary maneuver uh for for putin to be able to claim at least some kind of victory you you never know what putin is going to order and what the military is going to do i i i'm going to assess with with moderate to high confidence that the Russians do not have the ability to take Odessa and do not have the ability actually even to create any kind of a land bridge to Odessa, let alone all the way to Transnistria. Um, I'm, I'm going to support that assessment in a number of ways. First of all, it would require Russia getting Russian ship captains willing to, to, to sail within uh, missile range um, and have some kind of confidence that they were suddenly going to become submarine captains. Um, and that's that's going to be a hard sell in the Black Sea Fleet at this point. I'm not assaulting um, any place that has tractors in it. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, 
beyond that, they, they just don't have the schlitz. I mean, they just, they don't have the forces. I mean, we're seeing reports from the Ukrainian intelligence that the Russians are pulling sailors off of ships and putting them into naval infantry units. Okay. I mean, like, I guarantee you those guys are not storming beaches and, and surviving. Probably not storming beach. They're probably not getting off the landing craft, even if you try to do that. So they, they just don't have the, and that's, this is why they keep, you know, one of the reasons they keep firing missiles at Odessa. They're, they're trying to achieve, you know, certain psychological effects, but they don't have, they just don't have the capability to do this. And they won't, I can't see them creating that capability for months or years uh, because it really will require a large scale rebuilding of ground forces that I just, they're burning them as fast as they're generating them right now. Which kind of brings us back to the beginning in, in the Donbass. It seems that, um, you know, they're, they're essentially, so each side is fighting a different war uh, in, in some ways. Um, uh, again, the Russians keep sort of reducing the scope of their maneuver, if you can even call it that. And, and now they're finding themselves, you know, their, their artillery advantages are diminishing sort of hourly, if not uh, even more rapidly. It, by the same token, I mean, the, the Ukrainians are, it seems to me, but tell me if you think otherwise, are being very cautious. I mean, that they are, at least for the moment, content to nibble uh, in a way that just attrits Russian combat power. So, you know, people have been talking about a Russian culmination now for, you know, there's like a culmination sweepstakes. And the, the Ukrainian um, um, military has said they really don't expect uh, the pendulum to, to swing until August. I believe that was the most recent uh, uh, word out of the defense ministry. So Fred, how do you sort of, you know, net assess uh, the uh, the Donbass front? Yeah, look, I mean, I don't think the Ukrainians are content with what they're doing. Um, I think they are being very cautious. I think the caution is driven in fact in part by the fact that the Russians are continuing to attack um, all along the the would be cauldron, yeah. including attacks that are in principle, sort of militarily stupid, because I'm going to tell you right now, the Russians are not going to break out from Donetsk city through Avdivka to Kramatorsk and Slavyansk and do the big encirclement. It's not going to happen. But they're continuing to attack into the Avdivka and they're continuing to attack uh, from Izium toward Barvinkove, which is to the southwest of Izium as if they were continuing to try to outflank the defensive positions along the Slavyansk highway, as if they were going to go take Slavyansk, which they're not going to be able to do. And, you know, they're driving toward Bakhmut, which is, an, which is a little bit more problematic and they have a better chance of achieving something, although they're not going to take Bakhmut either. Um, so, you know, why are they doing that? And I think there are a couple of reasons, one of which I think Giselle will, uh, I hope will resonate with you as a military historian of long standing. that if you let troops pause, they will dig. If you let them dig, you will never get them moving again. 
And I do think that part of what's going on is that the Russians are trying to preserve uh, mobility as they can. And that actually requires getting, keeping their guys moving forward because otherwise they're just going to dig themselves comfy trenches and never leave. But beyond that, they keep all of these attacks force the Ukrainians to defend. And so they're, they're pinning Ukrainian defenders all along this position and not letting the Ukrainians mount concentrated, um, Counter you know, counteroffensives in this area while they're very focused on trying to prevent the Russians from completing the encirclement of Sieverotonetsk and this and that. So there's all a whole lot of pinning activity. And the Russians are fighting in the, the Ukrainian counteroffensive, as I said, around Kharkiv, um, I think for several reasons, but one of them is because they want to pin Ukrainian forces up there and not let them complete that in that counteroffensive and then, you know, move elsewhere. So Ukrainians do have a, a you know, combat capability problem here. They've decided they're leaning into the counteroffensive around Kharkiv, which makes a lot of sense. Um but I don't know what their ability is to generate additional counteroffensives at scale. They keep talking about a counteroffensive around Izum. The Russians are clearly worried about that. And I think the Russians are trying to spoil it. And I think some of the attacks we see from Izum are spoiling attacks designed to disrupt a Ukrainian counteroffensive there, which may be partially successful. Um, but on a more, on a grand strategic scale uh, level, I think it's also possible that the Ukrainians have been waiting a little bit to see if they actually would get this aid package. Because, you know, we, I've heard this before from Ukrainians sort of saying very sensibly, listen, you know, if we're going to launch a massive counteroffensive, we, are, we need help. Yeah. And if we're not reasonably sure that we're going to get that help, then it doesn't make sense to launch a massive counteroffensive that we're not going to be able to sustain. So I think it'll be interesting now that that has passed. Um, to see if if the Ukrainian if they start to uncork a little bit more, there's also the dynamic of just how long it's taking to get all the howitzers that we promised yeah. and stuff to the front line and get them employed. So it's I think you will see the Ukrainians rolling into more and more counteroffensives, but they are being rightly cautious, and I want to continue to praise them because, as I've been saying no, it all must along, be very difficult to to you know, not push every day as hard in every direction yeah. as possible. Yeah. But, but look, I mean, it continues to be the case that probably the single most important combat adv power advantage the Ukrainians have is that Ukrainians look like cyborgs. And to the Russian soldiers, it looks like being sent to the Russian front in World War II, right? It's just, it's the meat grinder. Yeah. And anything the Ukrainians do that could lead to a mistake where the Ukrainians get hammered in some way risks energizing the Russians and, and like that. So I think the Ukrainians are being very, very smart here. And this is one of the things when we do lessons of this war and we look at um, the, the how to evaluate both sides, especially when the war is over and we can really look hard at what the Ukrainians did and report on that, which we've all been, you know, rightly not doing. I'm sure we're going to find a whole bunch of things that are going to be mistakes and messes on the Ukrainian side that we didn't know about, which is fine. But I think we're also going to end up being very impressed yeah. at the quality of decision-making on that side. I just, just to slip in, the, the thing that impresses me every day is that Ukrainian command and control and information networks stay up and function um, in, and actually in ways that seem remarkably sophisticated, their ability to call fires, not, you know, in the Russian barrage by battery, 
way, but sort of a time on target from multiple sources is just, I'm not even sure the U.S. Army could do could do it quite so nimbly as the, it's, I exaggerate a little bit, but it's, it's for a, a small army like that, it's pretty yeah. impressive performance. No, I'm reacting because actually the Russian mill bloggers, and this is a whole other fascinating little story, the degree to which the Russian mill bloggers are turning on the Russian war effort and really starting to criticize it and actually doing a very good job of laying out the basics of the after-action review on the Russian side. Uh, and one of the things that yesterday we captured was the mill bloggers critiquing the, the reconnaissance strike complex uh, and and I'm sure Giselle remembers that from the 80s. Remember when yes, I'm old were, enough to remember that. We were briefing that about how that was going to transform and revolutionize warfare yeah, and stuff. We bought, we bought it hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> yeah, but we figured out how to do it so that it was not stupid. Right. Um, but the mill bloggers are saying what I th what is matched by what we're observing on the ground, which is that in on the Russian side that means a highly centralized decision making process, where where approvals for fires happen at high levels and are therefore just not timely. Um, but the Ukrainians, this goes back to points I've made, you know, made over and over again. It's, it's a disorganized, decent, part, somewhat disorganized, but highly decentralized military where it is, I'm sure that these kinds of calls for fire are not having to be approved, certainly by not by Zelensky, probably not by Resnikov, and I think just local guys. So the decentralization and the ability to get you let your guys do mission orders really matters. An army like a country, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yes, right. right. Yeah. So I had a very quick question. Um, since you brought up uh, the issue of, of, of this 40 billion aid package, uh, half of which I suppose is military aid, could you give us a sense of just sort of the order of magnitude relative to what the Ukrainians need? You know, you know, for how long does this keep them going if they're going to sustain an offensive? We know that the dynamics going into fall, politically speaking, in the US will be difficult, right? Sort of getting people to like vote on a similar package again before the midterms might be might be tricky. So, so just like be, I think, all elated that this got through and 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 it's a you know it's it's a, it's a big number it's just how elated it should we be and 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 how worried should we be that at some point money runs out or equipment runs out and if i can add to that um how long daribor was asking and i would add to that to how far like literally in geography can it get them yeah. well that question i can't answer because it that it that really depends on how Will the Russian army break? Is there a point at which the Russian army will break? And if so, what will be required to break it? Will And then if it breaks, will the whole thing break or will it break in pieces? Um, those are real questions, but we won't know until it happens. And if it doesn't break, then the answer is, I do not think that this package gets the Ukrainians all the way to the border. Um or even to the pre-invasion lines. If the Russians actually hold together and fight in a coherent fashion, then I don't think this is going to be enough. Um, and it's it's almost certainly not going to get them through the year. There will be another large package that would be required this summer, I think, to carry them forward. Um, and I am very concerned because I think that the, uh, the forces of isolationism have organized themselves to start pushing back against this uh, uh, supporting Ukraine, 
Um, and especially, I think that there was a certain sticker shock uh, with the size of this bill that galvanized opposition to it. Uh, I suspect that another bill of this rough magnitude would be required later in the year. And I think we're going to see more opposition to that. So I think it's going to be very important to um, help Americans understand why helping Ukraine is helping us and why, how very much in America's vital national security interests uh, it is to help Ukraine expel the Russians and establish itself in a way that will deter any future Russian uh, attack. Uh, it's easy enough to point to some of the very concrete and specific impacts on Americans' pocketbooks that this war is having, including not least the food uh, you know, shortage crisis and various other things, which is entirely Russian caused. And of course, as you, as we were talking about earlier, there doesn't need to be a food shortage if Putin would just let the Ukrainians export the grain that they have. Uh, but he won't. Um, and so, you know, this, we, we need to understand why this stuff matters and we need to help Americans keep understanding that because we're good. The Ukrainians are going to need more and it's going to be in our interest to provide more. Um, but I think it's going to have, we're going to have to gird ourselves for a harder fight along those lines. You're basically telling us that it's going to be a lot of hard work and a busy summer for all of us here. Well, on a Friday, so, it's yeah. weekend. It that there'll be an 8th and the ninth and the 10th appearance by Fred on the Eastern Front. Fred, that goes Fred without is, saying. He's going to have to establish a, a forward headquarters, a wolf's lair on the Eastern Front. <laughs> Thank you, Fred, so much for joining us this time again and offering us your insights from me, Yulia Georgia, and my friends. Giselle Donnelly and Dalibur Raj. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye. Oh.